Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We have spent several weeks now discussing this confrontation in Ephesus and seeing really the situation between true teaching and false teaching. Today we continue that and look at the authority of true teaching. The authority of true, te- true teaching. So I do ask that those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I'm going to begin in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. Verse 12. I thank him who has given me a strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display in his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. C.F. Allison writes that heresy is the ultimate cruelty. It did not take long for the early church to wander into heresy. We see that evidence this morning in our study of 1 Timothy. If it were not for outright heresy, we wouldn't have this epistle at all because there would have been no reason to leave Timothy in Ephesus. But even if it wasn't for this instance, we'd likely have a different letter. We know that because we have Colossians, and in our study of Colossians before 1 Timothy, we saw the same thing, that there was heresy and false teaching taking place. In fact, it impacts most of the New Testament churches. By the end of the first century, We have the disciples of John propagating this higher knowledge, a knowledge that they said was only available to them. This would set the course for what we now know as Gnosticism. And I would tell you that Gnosticism is the primary issue of the church today. It is why there are so many splinter groups who would claim to be Christian. One of the things about Satan's deception today, yesterday, and throughout all of church history, is that deception is never produced by falsehood. Deception is never produced by falsehood. The method of deception that we always see 
is that it's always proliferated by partial truth. We see that in the garden with Adam and Eve. When Satan didn't just state a plain lie, he didn't just give them falsehood, that would have been easily verifiable. No, he deceived them with something that contained a mixture of error and truth. That is always the best way to mislead. Because it requires of people both a knowledge of the subject, but also a willingness to reason about that subject. Throughout history, deception was never found in straight error. It's always truth mixed with untruth. Something we should probably appreciate about history then is their willingness to deal with straightforward, in a straightforward way, with the heresy that would take place. We saw councils that were called to confront heresy. Certain theology was condemned if it was inconsistent with scripture. And even men and their followers were excommunicated if they did not return to orthodoxy. Today, our tolerance for partial truth, couched in this language of love, which actually goes back to Gnosticism, is not only concerning, but as C.F. Allison said, it is the greatest cruelty. Philip Graham Riken speaks to this, saying that it is the greatest cruelty because it does not love enough to warn of judgment. It is murderous to the soul. Heresy allows people to persist in their ways. It never brings them to the giver of salvation. It allows people to perish apart from the Lord True teaching doesn't just shape theology. It shepherds the heart. It guides them away from the father of lies and instead towards the father of truth. For several weeks now, we've seen this confrontation in Ephesus. Again, this confrontation between true teaching and false teaching. That false teaching that appeared within the church, leading people of the church away from Christ and instead towards the leaders the very leaders who, rather than desiring to exalt Christ, desired to exalt themselves. They wanted to be teachers of the law. But true teaching, true teaching, it aims to see people love God by knowing God. 1 Timothy 1.5 This morning in verses 8 through 11 of this letter, we see what that looks like. It is here that Paul explains to Timothy the use of the law and how it leads people from their own sin towards a savior. This law is authoritative. It's a means by which to guide sinners towards the one authority. And so this morning I want us to look upon three characteristics of the law that give it authority. I want you to note first the law's goodness. The law's goodness passage actually begins very explicitly saying, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Because it shows man's sinfulness, the law is often thought of very negatively. The law is seen as necessary, but at the same time, it's considered a negative aspect of the Christian life, only meant to bring that person into submission. In fact, in our sinful nature, we tend to distort the law by transforming it into just that, 
something only just as a means to tell people what they should do and what they should not do. That's called legalism. And why is legalism so, so profound and so taking over people's lives? Because legalism allows a person to have outward conformity without ever having inward transformation. But the word of God here in our text, it it calls the law of God good. Just as God stood back at creation and declared, it is good, so too the law falls into the same category. It is good. What is it that makes the law good? By the definition of today, goodness is very subjective. If you search the definitions online, just throwing in what is a definition of good or goodness, what comes up is the idea that something is good because it has these characteristics that are desired. That's subjective. As I was with some fellow men in ministry this week, one of them said, if you're coming here, if you've not been, people come here for the barbecue. We need to go. You need to go try it. So we did. We took an extended lunch and did just that. And indeed, it was really good. I don't have a lot of experience with barbecue, but by far it was probably the best I'd ever had. It was tender and it was flavorful. It was good because it had those characteristics that I desired, tender and flavorful. The law, it cannot be good in that way. Because in our sinful nature, Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we will never desire the law. We will reject it. We are content in our ways. We'd rather stay there than to pursue God. So the law cannot be good based on having some sort of desirable attributes that we want. So what makes the law good? It has to start with the nature of the giver of the law. The law is good because God is good. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. God is good. That is his nature. If God is good, then all he does is good. And all that he creates is good. What does James say? We read it this morning. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. But it goes further than that. The law is not just good because God is good, but it is good because it reflects his nature of goodness. It shows us that God is good. Consider the Ten Commandments and recognize that each reflects the goodness of God. Even just in the first one, you shall have no other gods before me. To have no other gods is a good command because it leads us towards God and his goodness. It allows us to both remember and to experience his goodness. The law is good because it exposes us to the goodness of God. Paul sums it up in Romans 7.12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But allow me to read further in that passage. Verses 13 through 16 of Romans 7 reads, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin 
producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Notice what happens there. Paul argues that he's being put to death. But what is putting him to death? Was it the law? No. It was sin putting him to death. But had it not been for the law, he would not have seen that sin was putting him to death. The law is good. And it is good because it exposes sin against God just as it did for Paul. It reveals sin telling us what to do or not just what to do or not to do, but it reveals what goodness is. And so when we look at the Ten Commandments, what we see is that goodness is first a love for God. It's revealed in the commands, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make your own, yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Goodness is seen in a love of God. Goodness is also then seen in a love of others. Honor your father and mother. You shall not steal. You shall not bear witness or false witness against your neighbor. The law is good because it exposes sin, revealing for us anything in us that is contrary to God's goodness. And that brings us to that third aspect of why the law is good. Because it exposes us to the will of God. The law doesn't merely just say what's right or what's wrong. When we're confronted with the law, it's saying to us, there's something in you that is not good, and you need to do something about it. That's the will of God, to do something about it. That we put off the old self, and that we put on the new self, being transformed into holiness. This is the will of God. And the law is good because it tells us where we are inconsistent with that standard. That is the law's goodness. We need to think about something in relation to goodness then. James is correct that every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. The law would be part of that. Anytime the Lord gives something good, that becomes an issue of stewardship. Anything good from the Lord must be stewarded for the Lord. Your spouse, your children, your parents, these are all good and perfect gifts from the Lord to be stewarded for the Lord. Your job, or for those of you retired, your retirement, that's a gift from the Lord to be stewarded for the Lord. And so in the same way the law is a good and perfect gift from the Lord, it must also then be stewarded for him. So how do we do that? The text tells us it is stewarded by using it lawfully. That proper use is seen in how society uses law. It is put into place to show what is right and what is good. And if somebody strays from that law, then there are consequences. In this way, the law is meant to restrain evil. The word lawfully in our text is actually paedagogus. It means tutor 
or custodian. Not to tutor, but a tutor or custodian. In the day of his writing, in, in Paul's writing, it signified that somebody was responsible for a child. Often it was a slave, and that slave would take this child to school and sit alongside the child and supervise the conduct of that child. That's what the law is. The, this law, the lawful use of the law, it comes alongside us and supervises our conduct. As humans, though, we have this incredible gift of being able to distort good things. And that's what the false teachers have done here. The Pharisees did it during the time of Christ, and now the false teachers do the same thing in Ephesus. Today, it's the same. It's the same in which the law is used to regulate things that it ought not regulate. The law is good, but the goodness is only seen when it is used properly. Scripture is good and holy, but our interpretation, our application of it may not be. That obscures the goodness of the law. On other people's end, on an unbeliever's end, they, they may be hard-hearted, but on our end, if we're misusing and misinterpreting the law, then we obscure the goodness. We do this by making it serve our needs instead of God's will, or by imposing it where it doesn't belong, or adding to it, or taking away from it. The law is good when used lawfully. That's the law's goodness. But I want you to know, second, the law's gravitas. The law's gravitas. There's a fountain pen company that goes by that name. They started just a few years ago, and they called themselves Gravitas. <coughs> I didn't understand that word initially. Where did it come from? Eventually, though, it began to make sense, because their pens are made of metal. Most fountain pens these days are made of, of plastic of some sort. It's much easier to work with, but it's highly durable. The Gravitas company, though, chose metal. Doing so made them more durable than the plastic pens. But it also made them more weighty. They're a lot heavier than plastic pens. They are heavy pens. That's why it's called Gravitas pens. Because Gravitas signifies weightiness. Like the pen, the law is weighty. At the same time, it's balanced. A pen is about balance. Yeah, you don't want it to be too heavy or too light, but it's also about balance. If it's too much weight on one end or the other, it makes it very hard to use, and your hand gets tired, so it's difficult to hang on to. The pen's weight matters, but... What matters just as much is that well-balanced. That is what we see in the law. The law is weighty and it is balanced. That's the description we find in our verses 9 through 10. Let me read it to you again, beginning verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down 
for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The law is gravitas, the law is weighty, pressing down on the souls of men and women and burdening their conscience. But who's the law for? What's our text say? According to the text, the law is not for the just. The law is not for the righteous. That means it is for the unjust, the unrighteous. That's the use of the law then with the unrighteous. It is meant to reveal sin so that somebody sees their need for Christ. The one made righteous has no need for Christ. They were already made righteous by Christ. Erasmus stipulates, we both know and acknowledge that the law is good only if it is lawfully used. And they are abusers of the law who expound it against itself. The chief purpose of the law was to lead others to Christ. Why should a horse that runs well and of its own accord need a bridle and a spur? Those who are led and ordered by the Spirit of Christ run uncompelled and do more than all the whole law requires. And having once freely attained righteousness, he says, they flee from all unrighteousness. Therefore, the law which restrains people from doing evil by means of fear is not given in a way to those who do willingly and gladly that which the law requires, even if they do not have the words of the law. The law is necessary then for those who need to have their lawlessness revealed. It is for those who lack holiness, their unholy deeds, which are described in our text again here. The lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. What do you notice about that list? It follows the Ten Commandments. To make this easier in your bulletin is a chart. Allow me to just very quickly go through these key aspects. We see in Exodus 21 through 3, it says, Have no other gods. Who's the law for? The lawless and rebellious. Those who recognize no higher authority. They do not recognize God or any God. It says no idols in Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. And what do we have? Ungodly and sinners. They are idolaters. Their sin is elevated above God. And thus they violated no idols. Verse 7 of Exodus 20 says to not misuse the name of the Lord. And then it goes on in verses 8 through 11 to remember the Sabbath. What do we see in our text? the unholy and the profane, those that do not recognize anything as sacred. Honor the father and mother, it says in Exodus 20.12. Here we have one who kills their parents. And then the easy ones, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie. What do we have? Murderers, sexually immoral, kidnappers, literally slave traders, and liars and perjurers. And then the last commandment 
do not covet our verses and whatever else is opposed to sound teaching. The law is extensive here. There's not one person who does not fall under this list. And for any of us that might think, well, this doesn't describe me, then we must consider the depth of the law. Look at the command in Exodus 20, 13. You shall not murder. What did Jesus do in Matthew chapter 5? He says this. You have heard that it was said of the days of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But... I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus just equates anger with murder. And which of us has never gotten angry? Which means who of us has never murdered? Nobody. That's the weightiness of the law. The law is weighty. It's convicting and condemning people. There's not one person accepted from this. The law places a burden upon the conscience of, of people. It's extensive. And then if that's not enough, 1 Timothy 1.10 concludes, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. <coughs> so it's not just anything on this list that condemns, but then it goes on and says anything, anything that is contrary to sound doctrine. That's a broad range. The law is for those who engage in anything that is contrary to healthy teaching, contrary to teaching that spurs a healthy spiritual life of growth and godliness. True, genuine teaching produces true, genuine fruit. Or perhaps said better, healthy teaching produces healthy living. If anything contrary to that is shown, there's bad fruit. And then the law is applied and it's pressed upon that person. The authority for this comes from the word of God. We are to call out that which is inconsistent with the law of God. How do we do that? Or rather, maybe I should ask, where does the authority come from to do that? The answer is the same for both. How do we do that and where does the authority come from? Jesus said, I have been given all authority under heaven and earth. And I am with you until the end of the age. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How do we do it and where does the authority come from? It's Christ. It comes from Christ at the Great Commission to tell us to do it by sharing the gospel. The law has little relevance for law-abiding people, but as long as there is ungodliness in the world, there is a need to proclaim the law. But you cannot stop at the law. If you preach the law alone, you leave people without hope. Agadeus Hunius puts it this way. With the voice of the law, which is like a hammer, they should be made to fear so that they should be led to heartfelt admission of sins. The law's only answer to sin is to confront it and condemn it, but it cannot overcome it. Therefore, the law is meant to give weight upon a person's conscience, to press upon them the gravitas or the weightiness of their unrighteousness in order that they may come to Christ. 
And that brings us to the final point. I want you to know, third, the law's gospel. The law's gospel. Because it is a picture of God's character, the law and the gospel, they always go together. As the law reveals the character of God, it always takes us to the gospel of God. Look at our text again. And and let me read, beginning in verse 9, but by removing that list of sins. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedience, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The law leads to the gospel. And notice what Paul does. He brings it back to his own stewardship, saying, with which I have been entrusted. One appreciation I have for Paul is his amazement at this position of stewardship. He writes elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 9, 17. For if, we do, if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Galatians 2, 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Repeatedly, Paul explains he's been entrusted with this gospel. It is clear that Paul counts this a very great privilege. I find myself challenged by this because his amazement at being entrusted with the gospel It causes him to steward the gospel for the glory of God. At the Great Commission, God entrusts his people with the same gospel of glory. Though few of us would be entrusted or are entrusted with the same level of ministry as Paul, we are entrusted with the same gospel. But does our amazement with this reality cause us to steward the gospel like Paul? This is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Entrusted to insignificant mistake from people like me. The willingness of the Lord to do this is unbelievable. And so I have to ask myself, am I so awestruck that I am willing to set aside myself and steward the gospel? The truthful answer, I think, has to be, I fall short. I don't think I'm so sufficiently astonished by this point that I'm willing to sufficiently steward the law and the gospel for him or any of us. Authority for true teaching comes from this fact. This teaching comes from the Lord. This truth is his. And he tells us to go out and use it. Contrary to the false teaching propagated by the false teachers, which has no authority to be shared, the true teaching, it's backed by him. And so to do this means we must understand how to steward it. We already talked about this by using it lawfully. But what does that look like? By taking the law and using it to point to the one who can save people 
from the law's condemnation. The law, when you show it to people, it creates a problem for all people, helping to them to realize that indeed they are guilty of sin under the law. Paul writes in Romans 3, verses 19 and 20, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law condemns every person. It brings them under subjection to an authority and it reveals a person's need for a savior. And so it takes us to the message of the gospel. This is where the false teachers went wayward because it seems they use the law, but never to lead to the gospel. It leads them elsewhere. It leads them to themselves and exalting themselves is what it leads to. And now they find themselves in error to the point that Timothy has to stay and, and work through the situation. They have used the law unlawfully rather than lawfully. How do we know if we use the law lawfully? When we've used it to point to God rather than people. What does that look like? What does that mean? Again, I've alluded to it earlier. Most frequently, people use the law to point to themselves or point to other people. When someone gets angry, as an example, they take a person to the law and they say, do not get angry. But they stop there. When someone gets angry, they say, do not get angry, and they stop there. And what happens? Not only have you pointed that person to themselves, but you've left that person without hope. Because what you said, basically, is you have a problem. You have an anger problem but you've given them nothing else. That may be a truthful statement. They may have an anger problem, but you haven't given them help for overcoming that problem. The law points out sin, but the next step is to take it to the gospel. It says you are angry, but that's contrary to the grace of God that could be offered to you through Christ. If the Lord had been angry with you like you're angry with this person, what would happen? And they would probably have to respond, eternal condemnation. But the gospel overcomes that, both the anger and the eternal condemnation. The law used lawfully leads to Christ. Explained in this text is a threefold purpose of, sin, of the law. First, the law is used to reveal sin. Then the law is used to restrain sin. And finally, the law is used to guide people towards restoration from sin. Those three attributes are inherent just to the law's goodness. Because the law is meant to take people from sin to God through Christ. It is good. Do we really believe that the law is good? As I ask that, it's easy for us to say, of course the law's good. The law came from a good God. And so, yes, I believe that the law is good. But do we really believe that? Do our ac actions show that we believe the law is good? How do we know if we truly believe the law is good? 
You want to know a true test of whether or not you think the law of God is sufficient? Or a true test of whether or not you think the law of God is magnificent? A test to show whether or not you truly think the law of God is good, the law of God is good, is this. How do you react when you read Psalm 119? When you hear verses like verse 57, the Lord is my portion, I promise to keep your words. Or verse 129, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. How do you respond? When we read something like verse 59 that says, when I think on my ways and turn my feet to your testimonies. Did you hear that and say, yes, Lord, that is a desire of my heart. I am convicted and need you to turn me towards you. Or did you say, yeah, that's, that's nice. I believe that. But I'm not perfect, so I'm just going to continue as I am, and I'll keep trying. For when we read verse 129 that I just read, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Did you say, indeed, the Lord's testimonies are wonderful? How glorious and marvelous they are. How perfect are they for my life? Or did you wonder what would the testimonies of the Lord look like if they were actually active in my life? And maybe we're saying, but I'm a believer. I don't fall under the law. You're right. Those who profess Christ are not under the law. But the requirements of the law and the fruit of the gospel are exactly the same. The difference is the one under the law stands condemned. The one under the gospel stands forgiven. But the standards are exactly the same. So when conduct is inconsistent with Christ, with the unbeliever, you show them the law. With the believer, you show them Christ. That's Galatians 3. The law is good because it leads the, un leads the unforgiven to Christ. And the law is good because it leads the forgiven back to Christ. The law is a good and perfect gift from the Lord. And all good things must be stewarded. And so we're compelled to ask, how do we use it lawfully? How do we steward the law? I think first and foremost, what we see in scripture, by stewarding the law to steward our children and grandchildren. We celebrate mothers today, grateful for yet another good and perfect gift from the Lord, as they are. We celebrate mothers because we recognize their importance in our lives and their influence in our lives and in our families. We saw this earlier in 1 Timothy when we talked about who Timothy was, who influenced him. Lois and Eunice, his, his mother and his grandmother, he attributes his faith to them. This was stewardship of the law first, to lead Timothy to his need for a savior, and then a stewardship of the gospel to lead Timothy even further to walk with that savior. That's what we're talking about here. 
What were the instructions given to Israel in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. What happens in Deuteronomy 5, the chapter previous to Deuteronomy 6 that I just read? It's a giving of the Ten Commandments. It's a giving of the law. It just lays out what we see in Exodus 20 again. So how do we steward the law? By using it to teach our children and grandchildren with it. Look at, as an example, you don't need to look at it, but consider Deuteronomy 5, 7, the first command again. You shall have no other gods before me. We live in a sinful, fallen world that has a lot of things competing to be good in our lives, be a God in our lives. The obvious ones we talk about are things like money and sports. For some, though, it may even be work. But it doesn't have to be physical. For some, their God is comfort. For others, it's joy or freedom or respect. As parents and grandparents, we steward the law by teaching the law to our children and grandchildren. But we do so not just in words, but in actions. Think about some examples. Anytime you skip church because you have sports going on or because you have work to do, you've just postured yourself more towards the world, even if it's just slightly. And you've given an example to your children and grandchildren, and you've shown them that that was greater than God. Using my example of anger, think about when you get mad. Whether you yell obscenities at somebody or just slightly mutter under your breath the displeasures that you had. You've again postured yourself towards the world. And what you've shown is that whatever you were angry at was much greater than God in your life. It was much greater than maintaining a testimony of Christ. That's what we call an idol of the heart. With each step, we posture ourselves further towards the world. And it could be slight and incremental, but over time, our kids take note, so that by the time they get an adult or grandchildren, they're already here. We may have started here and gone here. They're here when they go out. And if we haven't shepherded them, it's much harder to bring them back to God. It's easier for them to turn further. How do you steward the law? By living it in such a way that it stewards your children and grandchildren. Think about this. For the first time in history, we live in a generation that doesn't need the older generation to teach it. They can go onto the internet and find whatever information they want to find. And a lot of things they don't want to find. Not all of it necessarily good. But the law is good. The law allows us to steward our children and grandchildren. It brings that gravitas, that weightiness, and we can lead them towards the gospel.
If we don't take the opportunity to teach our children and grandchildren, the world will. And so we steward the law lawfully. It begins at home. Let's pray. Father God, you are a good and perfect God. And we see that in the good and perfect gifts that you give, Lord. Father, we're grateful for the law because the law revealed our sin and led us to you, Lord. And so, Father, I pray now that we would steward that law, steward that gift. Help us to use it in the lives of those that are around us, not to convict and condemn, but rather, Lord, to give them Christ, to show them who you are and show them their need for a Savior, that they may come to you through that, Lord. Father, may that be our burden and our task. If we do give you great praise for calling us unto yourself, Lord, for allowing us this privilege to steward the law. We commit all of these things to you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.